Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Noir Alcidir. Noir Alcidir is the author of Animal Joy, a book of laughter and resuscitation. She's also the author of the poetry collection's Fourth Person Singular, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry, and More Shadow Than Bird. She lives in New York City as a psychoanalyst. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Noir Alcidir. So I just had a session. I'm a psychoanalyst. And I had it over Zoom. I uh, I have an office. I'm kind of in person some of the time, over Zoom some of the time. After the pandemic, many people didn't want to go back to in person because it was so convenient to be able to just log in for a session and then log out or take it from wherever they were. So Every weekday I work, I do sessions and in the early mornings and over the weekends. Do you find there's like a big difference between the in-person and remote style of sessions or do you think it kind of adapts well either way? I think there's a huge difference because unconscious communication, much of it is transmitted through the body and when you're in person, it's easier to attend to different levels of communicative data. You can still do that over Zoom, but not quite as well. You have to use your intuition and perceptive abilities to receive those communications. So in the same way, when you're walking down the street, you pick things up from other people, like motions they admit into the atmosphere, you pick those up as an analyst in the room. The one thing I would say that's been interesting about working over Zoom is the equalizing effect. Because when I work in my office, out of my office, everybody comes onto my turf and they're a guest in a sense in my office and they follow my rules, sit on my furniture and I'm in control. Whereas over Zoom, we log into this neutral space and people are in their homes. Sometimes they're more comfortable. There's, mm-hmm. it, there's less of a power dynamic. Interesting. So maybe in some ways easier for the person doing it but you know maybe more of a challenge for you yeah and it's also hard for people to find private space Mm. I've had many sessions where people are in their cars or on the street or in a random place with headphones on yeah um so take me back to like childhood and so I know that you're also a poet and obviously we're about to talk about this book-length essay Um, And tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up as a reader and writer. And then also I'm really interested in how um, becoming a psychoanalyst plays into all of this, like kind of what came first in your maybe identity or way of seeing yourself and, you know, what you wanted to do, you know, with your life. Yeah. How did all this happen? Well, 
I think of myself as more of a thinker than a reader. I like things that are dense. So I can read three pages and then think about what I just read off page for hours. I probably spend more of my time thinking than reading. I know some people read more than they think or think as they read. For me, uh, what I read is often uh, feeding my thinking and that's where I thrive. Mm -hmm. As a young child, I used to think I had ESP, extra powers, because people weren't really talking about the things that I was perceiving or thinking about. And I was a dancer, I played piano, I played clarinet, I did a lot in the arts. And I felt like in that space, I could really express myself and be understood. It became the space where I felt like I I got things, people got me, it, it, and that somehow transformed into poetry. I, I wrote poetry from a really young age, so I can't really say when it began. Um, I had my first poem published when I was nine years old. Wow. A poet came into our classroom and asked us to write poems, gave us prompts, and it was a list poem called Bored Is. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because nothing I named or called boring is actually boring. They were all really huge emotions like anger, disappointment. So it's just a complete an, an irony underneath the whole thing, I guess. Well, it's it's interesting as an analyst now, I'm very interested in boredom because I see it as a defense against stronger emotions. Mm. I think oftentimes when I feel bored in a session or when the analyst feels bored, it's often because something is being defended against. So there's this dead space. And maybe my interest in boredom began <laughs> when I was <laughs> a young child. But it, there, it, it, it was really, I think, a way of trying to figure out how to handle and manage and what to do with really strong emotions because yeah. it wasn't being given the tools. Hmm. What do you think that was that you, you know, recognized as like an ESP, like just a, like a compassion or kind of an empathy or like a social awareness or something? What do you think that was? And like, you know, how much of it do you think like is left in you now? Well, probably some of it was just being a very sensitive, attuned person coming into the world that way. But I think also my parents were immigrants, so they switched in and out of Arabic and English, but there was almost a feeling of a world that was inside the home, and then there was another world that was outside of the home. So I was learning the codes of different spaces as I was moving through them. So I think as many people from either immigrant, an immigrant background or other kinds of backgrounds that um, require code switching, 
no, you become really sensitive to entering a space, reading the codes, figuring out what they are before you dive in and mm -hmm. or speak or assert yourself. So that may have been part of what was going on as well. Yeah. And then so at what point were you like, okay, I'm going to become a psychoanalyst, but also I'm going to become, you know, a, re a renowned poet. <laughs> How did this kind of development, was it all happening at like the same time? Um, or were they kind of different interests you followed at different times? It's interesting. When I was in college, I was already writing poetry, but I also was really interested in neuroscience. And I was a neuroscience major and pre-med up until the end of my junior year when I switched to an English major because I didn't want to be a neurologist. I didn't want to be another kind of doctor and I didn't want to be a psychiatrist, but I didn't really know about psychoanalysis then. It wasn't something that I thought of as an option. And I also uh, had gotten very sick and I had one of those cliche moments where I thought, well, if I died, hadn't done what I wanted to do, I would regret it on my deathbed. So let me use this as a wake up call and just switch. And so I switched, I did an English major in a year, wrote my undergraduate thesis, but also talking about code switching, it was really difficult to switch from the sciences into an English major at the higher levels because there was so much jargon. There were so many ways of talking about books, things that were being referenced that I couldn't quite follow. So then I, I tried to learn what I could. After college, I applied to MFA programs was at NYU getting an MFA. And then I realized there that I really needed to get a PhD. I really realized it when I was in Provincetown. I had a fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center after I finished my um, MFA. And then I decided to go back and get a PhD in English literature because I just, I wanted to know what I didn't know. I didn't want to be an imposter or feel like an imposter as a writer and uh, as I was going through the process, writing my dissertation, thinking about a lot of psychoanalytic issues, I worked with, I, I basically was working on epistolarity, which is not just letter writing, but what goes on psychologically in the process of addressing someone or not hearing back, what the psychoanalytic implications are. And I started to really miss um, consciousness, ideas about consciousness, neuroscience. And I decided to pursue a scholar's program degree in psychoanalysis and knew that I really wanted to become an analyst and figured out how to do that while I was doing the scholar's program, switched into a program that would give me clinical training. And so it wasn't really like a switch in careers. It was more like a spiraling over yeah. <laughs> interest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're going to talk mostly about the book Animal Joy, 
But I know there's two poetry collections that you did previously, Fourth Person Singular and More Shadow Than Bird. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about, you know, those books, um, how they came about and, you know, just a little bit about maybe, you know, what you aim to do in poetry and, and in those books and what subjects you're taking on. They're very different. So More Shadow Than Bird is a straightforward collection of poems. It was put together because someone approached me and asked me if I had a manuscript and I said, sure. And then I put it <laughs> together and it, it isn't as much a book as fourth person singular is fourth person singular isn't a collection of poems, but it's really a book of poetry. Mm-hmm. And I put it together as a cohesive whole. I I thought of it almost as an art installation so that someone would enter the book and have an experience. And I was curating it very carefully in order to create the space for the reader to engage with it. And um, I think that Animal Joy is close to fourth person singular in many ways, but in one formal way that it also is a book and I put it together as a book that was a cohesive whole and not a collection of essays. And what kind of like subjects and ideas do you find that you explore most, you know, in your poetry, you know, as you know, in Animal Joy, it's laughter and um, poetry (laughs) and uh, um, psychoanalysis and fam and many things. Um, but I wonder how much overlap there is between the forms for you. Do you find yourself taking on subconscious concepts in the poetry as well? Um, or do you think you're channeling, you know, something else? With poetry, I don't always know what I'm writing until I've finished writing it. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of process than writing prose is for me. Writing prose begins in the same way where I'm following my associations and I'm seeing what comes out of me and I'm open. But with prose, there's a lot more conscious thought of delivering meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like you got to say the thing, (laughs) right? In poetry, it's like in and around and the things inexpressible maybe, right? Yeah, why would you write poetry if you wanted to deliver meaning? The whole purpose for me in writing poetry is to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I think it involves more levels of understanding than... I mean, hopefully prose involves all those registers as well. But I think there's a lot that's communicated unconsciously in poetry body to body and for me a poem is a successful poem if it moves the reader Mm -hmm. if you ask well what does it mean to be moved that happens in the body and how do you target the body of someone who you don't even know (laughs) when they're reading the book it's going to be in another space time than the one you wrote the book in so ultimately you have to move yourself, but that becomes part of the project is emotional experience. Hmm. And, you know, 
Animal Joy just seems must have been such an undertaking, <laughs> especially after doing two books of poetry, you know, and, and being mainly in that space, you know. So, um, you know, the subtitle is it's a book of laughter and resuscitation. And it's, you know, a, a book length, you know, personal essay slash research essay about laughter, you know, which is in, which is kind of inspired by your work as a psychoanalyst and, and your work in poetry and kind of focuses on these like um, extreme bouts of, I think, what you call like spontaneous laughter that you've either witnessed or experienced yourself or both. Um, and so I would wonder if, you know, along those lines, you'd talk about, you know, what inspired you to undertake this book you know, both in form, but also in the content, you know, as well. I think of it as the book I wrote while trying to write a book about laughter. So it's not a straightforward book about laughter, but I cover laughter yeah. completely. I mean, the spontaneous outbursts of laughter, as you said, I'm not covering all forms of laughter. So right. It's it's not like a traditional nonfiction book about laughter. It's really about those full bodied outbursts that overtake you. What scientists call Duchenne laughter, where you often don't even know why you're laughing, but you're just in a full bodied fit. And the, those, that kind of laughter feels great. And it feels rejuvenating and even physiologically, it does all sorts of things to your body. It releases endorphins. So you, you, you feel like you're reawakened. And part of what I'm trying to figure out in the book is not just using laughter to feel resuscitated, but what other ways can we feel resuscitated in our lives so that we feel alive and we aren't just going through motions because I think it's very easy to sort of step onto the moving walkway and find yourself just going along doing all the things you're supposed to do and mm -hmm. not really experiencing presence yeah and so this I guess the spontaneous laughter kind of became an intellectual pursuit you know at some point and, you know, what maybe guided you when you're conceptualizing this book that, okay, I don't just want to write about this intellectually. I want to bring in the personal um, and, um, you know, make these kind of poetic movements, you know, within the book between the ideas and the various, you know, ways you go into the personal, either through, you know, your work or, you know, your family uh, and things like that. Did it all kind of, did it always just appear to you like that when you were thinking of the book that it just mixed everything or, you know, was it something where you had to like work yourself up to be like, okay, this is also going to be about my life, you know, in its way. Well, I'd written not a draft of the book, but I'd been writing, working on the material, the research material for a while. And I had it all on a computer that crashed and it wasn't backed up. Oh, so I lost no. it. I didn't lose quite everything, but I lost pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. And after getting over the devastation of it, I actually started to feel relieved and a little bit excited because I had done most of the research, the sort of hard work and I could call upon that research 
and write the book differently. Hmm. And since I'm a poet first in, in my, in the way I see myself, I'm a poet first, mm -hmm. but I also have a PhD in literature, wrote a dissertation, mm -hmm. well-trained. I know yeah. how to write um, research-based, idea-driven work as well. And I didn't want to write that kind of book. I, I thought that would be easy. I could write a book on laughter that people could read and refer to, but I really wanted to write a creative book using the research so that all of the information would be delivered to the reader, but in an experience that is closer to poetry than academic writing. Yeah. And what do you think about, you know, the essay form when it works in this, you know, poetic way? I guess in what way is in what way does the poetic kind of lend itself to the essay form? What's the commonality there? Or what do you think, you know, an essay can do that's poetic in a way that an essay that is more, you know, uh, I guess academic for lack of a better word. You know, what, what, what can these essays do that those can't? The root of the word essay is in the French word to try. Mm -hmm. So when you write an essay, you're trying. And what are you trying to do? That's up to you. I, I am very interested in free association and associative thinking. Even when I'm working as an analyst or when I was in my own analysis, when I was training to become an analyst, you have to go through your own analysis. It was the moments when I, or when I'm an analyst, the analyzant says, I have no idea where I'm going with this. That if you keep going, you land on some kind of revelation that you couldn't have reached through conscious will. Mm -hmm. It's almost as though there's this brilliance within us that we can reveal or unveil, but we can't go after. Yeah. Like the unconscious. You can't go after the unconscious directly. You have to go at it through its derivatives. And in order to have access to, to its derivatives, you have to be open and free associate and allow what wants to come out to come out. Yeah. A certain spontaneity, you know, and kind of those connections you make between laughter and poetry and uh, psychoanalysis. Um, I also wonder, like, on a on a craft level, <laughs> um, like, what kind of, you know, are there any tricks you can think of, like, in your process as you're trying to manage these threads of these, you know, conceptual things and parts where it has to be more kind of analytic and then also balancing when the personal comes in and what aspects of it and, you know, what goes in the beginning and, <laughs> and all those things. I wonder if you could speak to the experience of juggling all that in the process and, you know, anything that kind of helped you make the book work. You know, I think that's kind of the challenge with this is when you're following kind of the spontaneous, the spontaneous things, right? Sometimes you can go out somewhere where you don't realize you're going and not find your way back. Right. And then for it to kind of work as a book, some, something by the end, the, the last thread has to be pulled and it somehow just pulls everything, you know, into place. Anyway, I was wondering if you kind of talk a little bit about that process. I, 
I can think of two things, but before I answer the question, can I ask you what sure. was your experience reading it as it was going out into what may have felt like outer space? Mm -hmm. I felt like there was like, to me, it's like the base, there's like the, the intellectual base and kind of the personal is like working into kind of and around it where like the base is those concepts of laughter and its connections to the various things. Like everything kind of goes back to that base, if that makes sense. So it's like, you know, the way you start the book is on that like family scene. Right. I think that's really like an important like place to start because it's not the base. It, that's like the thing that kind of brings you in to like the intellectual like grounding of the book, I guess. Right. Like it's all kind of feeding into, I think the abstract space that thinking space but it's like those various things that make it visceral and and kind of connecting uh, yeah it, that that makes me happy to hear you say that I think I went when I rewrote the book after losing what I the material I had one of the things I consciously did was think okay how can I put myself in the book so that I have something at stake so I'm not mm. just writing as an expert in essay voice to deliver information. And the things I did, one is in the same way in dance, if you're trying to choreograph work, you improvise, 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 and then you find a gesture. And if the gesture is interesting to you, then you repeat it, you repeat it, you play with it, you twist mm. it, you use it in different ways until it becomes what you want it to be. And then you use it. And I feel like in writing, I follow my associations and I write to the end of my tether and then I see how far I can go with it. And I see if I can go further, if I can move it around, if I can twist it as I would if I were dancing. And then when I figure out what it's meant to be, then I take what's useful and mm -hmm. I bring it into the project. And so I wrote a lot more than I have here. And I also wrote some essays for various publications. And when I brought them into the book, I opened them up. So an essay that might have been complete in essay form, I then would take one section, use it in the beginning, one section in the end, one section is somewhere else. And I didn't try to keep it together because it had a different purpose in the book than it did in someone else's publication. So... I think that I saw these different parts of the book as, as moves and then I put them together, I choreographed them into the book and as section breaks, I have choreography symbols, the notation. What I tried to do was think about the movement of mind between sections what it would look like if it were grafted onto the body. And then I took that choreography symbol and I put it there for the section break. And 
my idea in doing that was for the reader, maybe probably more for myself to remind myself that it was a piece of art to me and was an artistic form and not an argument or an academic work or even a traditional nonfiction book. Yeah. I wonder if you would, you know, tell me more about the research process. So I looked in the back and (laughs) the books and articles and other, other, you did a ton of reading and I know you already mentioned that a lot of it was kind of researched, you know, as you were writing this other version of the book and then kind of the book as, as I know it, or as we know it, is is the research was done and going as in that second process did you did you you know research and write at the same time still or was it like a clean kind of split for you in in the research or or was there something you know as you were reading or as you were writing like did you write yourself into areas where it's like oh i have i have to find a new book that i haven't read yet um to help kind of me figure something out Well, there were always holes that I had to fill. It it would be a gap and I needed a a thinker to help me create a bridge to get across. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was lucky about losing the work I'd done was that once I'd done it, it was inside of me. I'd written it out. I hadn't just done the research, but I'd written it out And that work was then in me in the same way an experience would be in me. So I could then write and just pull it out of me as though it was mine. Like the, the thing that's, the things that stuck just made their way in because they had to be in. And it was as though I had written them. I mean, my own experience. Yeah. yeah. What it, it they had been the ideas had been so metabolized that they became part of me, and then I had to cite, of course, where they came from. But essentially, it wasn't like it was initially when I was doing the research and writing out the ideas of other people. I find that kind of writing uh, miserable. I hate doing that. And that was done. And then once it was behind me, I could pull it out in my own metabolized form and sort of dance with it. Hmm. And that was fun. I mean, that kind of thinking I really enjoy. It's the kind of thinking you do in conversation. Someone says something, it reminds you of something you read, you Mm -hmm. pull it out, you talk about it, you don't really worry about getting it exactly right or representing the writer, you're using it in service of the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, one thing we haven't, I guess, talked about that much yet is laughter itself. <laughs> so one of the things that drew me to the book is I'm very interested in um, reading about laughter and doing a lot of studying um, and books. I'm using your bibliography <laughs> and, and your book as part of my research. Um, and I became interested, well, I mean, I've always been interested in it, but I think I became more interested in it intellectually, oddly enough, from doing this podcast and having to listen to myself so many times and to have so many different kinds of conversations and to think about, you know, I think we're all very sensitive to our own voice 
I think we're even extra sensitive to our laughter in some way, or at least I am. So it kind of became hyper aware of my laughing, even, you know, when I was, how I was, why I was, why they were. I even noticed like when I edit, I was almost making a laugh track because <laughs> I'd like take different parts of me laughing out like out of self-consciousness or something but I was always keeping it in those cues like it's like a sitcom or something you know where they were there and even now talking to you I can hear myself you know laughing as I go so anyway I became you know just very interested in it so I was so happy to find your book um, even you know exploring you know this other you know form of it and ways to think of it so my next question is partly selfish for my <laughs> own research um, but also for everyone else but I was wondering like if you could try to articulate a little bit about you know some of the things you learned about laughter in this book like after the book's written and now it's kind of you know a lot of it's kind of faded you know what are things you that are still in your brain that when you think about you know laughter as being revealing about human beings like what do you think laughter reveals about us you know the most um, or what kind of situations and or <laughs> um, what vice versa you know what about what about us as humans kind of reveals about you know maybe laughter I think that laughter is a general term that it applies to a spectrum of expressions or expressive behavior. And I think the easiest way to kind of boil it down and explain laughter is to talk about the two categories scientists break it into, which is Duchenne and non-Duchenne. Duchenne mm -hmm. laughter is the spontaneous body-driven laughter that is a fit. It's hysterical laughter uh, and you don't necessarily need a logical trigger. Non-Duchenne laughter is social laughter. It's the laughter we use when we're talking to people to communicate something outside of speech. Like, this is friendly, it's okay, relax, we're having a good time, I'm happy to be here. That kind of laughter makes up 90% of the laughter we use. The yeah. hysterical fits of laughter are actually quite rare. Those are the ones I was most interested in. Yeah. And at the same time, you can't really say that there are those two forms and there's a clear line between them because sometimes you can laugh really hard at a joke. So you know what the trigger is, but you're not, but your laughter is hysterical or you can have a fit of laughter. So it's not as simple as I'm making it out to be, or the scientists make it out to be. I think what is interesting is what it reveals about relationships. So if you look at, for example, your laughter, mm -hmm. as you're recording a podcast, I would guess, just knowing you for like 20 minutes, <laughs> you're probably trying to make people feel at ease Mm -hmm. And you're trying to indicate to them that they can be relaxed, even if it's not conscious, that right. they can take their time. It's all good. You're not perfect. They're, you're not expecting perfection from them. They can just yeah. be as they are. And that is, that's a 
kind form of manipulation. <laughs> it's also used to manipulate in aggressive ways. I mean, there's derisive laughter, there's laughter that makes someone feel ashamed. So mm -hmm. it can be used to trigger feelings in people for good, for bad, for neutral reasons. But um, I think what I would say is most interesting to me now, and I don't know if that was your question, but after having written the book is an idea that I started to think about at the end of writing the book, which is this this distinction between Duchenne laughter, the body-driven laughter, which is genuine, and non-Duchenne laughter, which is intellect-driven. And it's not that it's not genuine, but it's the emotion that you're expressing may be genuine. You may want to make someone feel at ease, but laughter itself is manipulative. Yeah. And um, that kind of laughter is only found in human beings. Duchenne laughter you can find in rats and apes and animals. What was interesting to me is I started to notice a parallel distinction in empathy where there's body driven empathy, like where you're, you see someone cry your mirror neurons cry and you feel the crying feeling inside yourself as though it's your own. And the same mirror neurons fire, whether or not the crying originates in you or whether you witness someone else's crying. And so you can expand your subject position and actually feel feelings that are not your own inside yourself. Mm -hmm. That kind of empathy would be the equivalent of Duchenne empathy. But then there's also non-Duchenne empathy, which is intellect-driven. Like when you look at someone's situation and you say, oh, that's too bad. That's horrible. And you you think it, but you don't necessarily feel yeah. it. And that's what Nietzsche called pity. And he... Yeah thought of pity as the worst emotion because it's very distanced. And I thought about this a lot also during the 2020 protests when people were really sensitive to people's, um, I don't remember what it's called when somebody is on Instagram and they record a video of themselves talking and then they post uh, it. I know what you're talking about. I can't yeah. think of what the name would be for it. Yeah. That became very common and people would feel like people's um, empathy was insincere. And I don't know if it was insincere, but maybe at times it might've been intellect driven and we right. feel the difference if it's body driven. And um, also Sadia Hartman talks about the precariousness of empathy, because some empathy involves walking in someone else's shoes, which means that you put yourself in their position. And there's something about that that's almost colonizing 
Like mm. you go in there, displace them, <laughs> and in order to feel that the position is uh, human or worthy of your empathy, mm. you have to be the one in those shoes. But if they're in the shoes, then you might not feel it for them. Mm. Right. Which is different than when the feeling comes inside of you through mirror networking systems in the brain. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting how I think as perceivers, either reading something created by that or video or, or sound, I think we do oftentimes instinctually, or at least I think I could, I think I have a bullshit meter at least, or, you know, when an emotion is being performed. I mean, well, it's hard to say, right? I mean, I believe acting <laughs> sometimes, right? In the moment. You're all acting. Yeah. It's, you're, I think we're able to perceive that kind of embodied emotional experience that a person has when they're really feeling something. There's an anecdote that I use from Oliver Sacks in the book, and he, he describes a, a hospital, and in the hospital there are patients who have a neurological disorder where they can't necessarily understand words, but they can understand emotion. And they're watching a speech by Ronald Reagan and laughing. And they were laughing really hard. And what they were laughing at was how insincere he was. <laughs> emotion was so fake. And it was funny to watch it, even though the words were very serious. And children also are really good at detecting insincerity. Hmm. Their, their skills of detection are so exacting. Same with animals. I mean, my dogs who were barking earlier, they, they can really pick up on a lot. Yeah, no, I'm thinking, I, you know, I have a five and three year old. <laughs> I'm thinking about all the ways that's so true. So, you know, I, I do wonder, have you been writing poetry this whole time? <laughs> or have, did you really have to put it away? Um, to work on this book, and and now that the book's done, are you kind of back to working on poems, or yeah, what's going on with poetry here? You know, throughout this book, I have written poems while writing the book, um, and poetry while writing the book. It, the thing that's difficult about the way I approach this book is that if I genuinely follow my associations and what comes up then everything goes into the book. Nothing mm. is separate work. And until later, I, there are some things that I decided didn't belong in the book and it was easy to decide weren't part of the book. But during the period of writing the book, everything belonged to the book first. Yeah, I I know that feeling, you know that <laughs> in, feeling? in that way that, yeah, when you're when you kind of become obsessed with a with a project it's like every single thing you hear and experience is like filtered through is this in the book is this for the book does this relate to the book um it's nice to know <laughs> to know that's not an act of complete insanity <laughs> on my part yeah, everything relates if you're really thinking deeply about something and you're really absorbed in it then you see it everywhere mm -hmm. and so you know what's what's next are are you is there another subject like nagging at you to do a big you know 
you know, researched book like this? Is there stuff you're reading about now that you're not necessarily writing about? But yeah, what's kind of taking up your thinking, you know, right now? At the moment, I'm working on a new project. I feel like it's too early to talk about because yeah. I'm playing. Everything I write begins with free space play. And so I'm trying hard not to turn it into something too early. And so I don't know what it is yet. Right. And so what kind of, to you, like, what does the play often consist of, you know, in a Word document? Is it just kind of thinking in different ways? Are you like writing little scenes? Are you just, you know, working on poems? Are you thinking about language? Are you thinking about none of that? I just wonder, you know, how does the play look for you on a screen or in your head, I guess? Well, first of all, it's not on a screen. I have bunch of notebooks of different mm. sizes. I'm a notebook person. Yeah. And so I'll put things in different notebooks and anything goes. Everything is admissible. Sometimes a phrase will start an unspooling of thought. Mm. I overhear on the radio or um, I love autocorrect. It's a really <laughs> great way of hmm. thinking of things in you, seeing things in you. I have a lot of awesome. autocorrect in Animal Joy also. Yes. Mm -hmm. I find it um, often hilarious. <laughs> um, I think I just, I'm, I'm kind of gathering and then running with things and um, putting the it all in different notebooks of different sizes that have different purposes, carry them around with me. Do you have like a quote book? Do you like write down quotes in the books you're reading and stuff? Or are you like, I write in the book? I, I write in the book and I, I'm a mad annotator. I, I tend to write in my notebooks whatever I'm quoting. I don't have a separate book for the quotes. And mm -hmm. even in fourth person singular, one of the things I did was I would use quotations as they were in my head and then have the correct quotation in the notes at the back of the book, mm. because there's this internalizing process that happens if I put the quotation inside of my notebook it's like it's entering my body and it becomes mm -hmm. mine and I give it its due acknowledgement, but I let it uh, shift form slightly so that it fits in my thinking yeah. and doesn't stay true necessarily to the thinker or the thinker's thinking that it emerged from. All right, that was my conversation with Noir Alcidir. Go grab a copy of Animal Joy from Grey Wolf Press, wherever you buy books. And don't forget to check out our books, too, over at autofocuslit.com books. That would be cool, and we'd appreciate it. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.